Good morning. Uh, as Ben said, um, if you want to be following on in one of the scripture journals, um, John's Gospel with some note space, um, please do grab one from the back and feel free to do that. Uh, we're going to look at God's Word together. Um, God speaks through His Word. That's why we're going to look at God's Word. He brings life to us through His Word. Um, and with that in mind, I think it right that we pray now for, um, for the funeral of the Queen tomorrow, and particularly for Justin Welby, who I think will be preaching at that service, a Christian service where the hope of Jesus will be at the center of it. Um, I, I, I saw this week there is an estimated 4.1 billion people who are going to watch that service. 4.1 billion people who will hear the hope of Jesus. So let's pray for that now, shall we? Our God in heaven, we praise you uh, that through your word you bring life. We bring that, that glorious message of hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray now for Justin Welby. Uh, we ask that you would help him to faithfully proclaim the hope of Christ. Uh, that you would enable him to set forth your word and that by your spirit, as that is heard by so many people, we pray that you would bring so much life and glory to your great son. Uh, we ask now for ourselves as we too come to hear your word. As we look at this passage set before us, please, please, in your mercy to us, would you open our eyes to see? Would you open our mouths wide and would you fill us up with the goodness of Christ that we might give him all the honor due to his name? Amen. Well, as I said, it is the Queen's funeral tomorrow. We will witness a funeral that is fit for a Queen. And those of us who, who watch it, we will see, I guess, a kind of um, a, a national expression, maybe a multinational expression of how much the Queen was valued. And, and, and as we see that, I think we're probably going to think, most of us, it wouldn't be fitting to do otherwise, to have a, a quiet service and an unmarked grave uh, would, would in some way kind of deny what she was. That the actions that we perform, the things we do, declare the worth of something. That's where we get the word worship from. From the word worth-ship. Uh, the ascribing of worth. Worship, the ascribing of the greatest worth. Uh, the novelist David Wallace said, Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And that's right. Isn't, it? Isn't that right? Isn't it that, that for every person there is something deep inside of us, something powerful inside of us that, that, that yearned out to ascribe value. Something that for each one of us is most. And the, the passions and the thoughts and the actions of our lives, the decisions even that we make are leaning towards a declaration that this thing has the highest worth. We worship it. We give it worth. We, uh, we tap our meaning from it. We enjoy it. We, we want that thing to be celebrated. Everyone worships. Uh, we all worship. And the only choice we get is what to worship. So let me ask you this morning how you are, how you're handling that choice. We get a choice, apparently. Uh, what to worship. How do you handle that? Uh, well, this passage gives us, I think, kind of something of a worship MOT. It kind of helps to recalibrate our worship. Um, John, the 
writer is writing things about the Lord Jesus. He's an eyewitness. He writes the things as an eyewitness so that those who weren't there, like us, uh, we can read what Jesus did, what he said. And, and as we read, we are able to see, this is John's agenda, that this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And we can believe on him. And believing on him, we will have life. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the, the first 18 verses, this kind of opening statement um, of John's subject. Uh, and now in our passage today, verse 19, we begin to get into the history of it. Uh, and we are presented with, I guess, the kind of first witness. As John the writer, he calls his first witness, um, as Jesus' life starts to go public, the first witness is John the Baptist. And, and as we read this passage, you will have noticed immediately we're, we're to think about questions of identity. Uh, it's helpful for us to, to, to know that as John the Baptist burst onto the scene, they were pretty turbulent times. The mighty Roman Empire is stretching across the known world. And in this little corner of that empire, there are frequent uprisings. Uh, from time to time, a leader would emerge. He would stir up the masses. He would lead a revolt. And it would be met with the merciless might of the Romans. Uh, and in these times, those who led the nation, those in Jerusalem, were, were fed mixed in their responses. Uh, some of them were, were longing that there would be change, longing for political liberation. Others of them were fearing that change. They, they wanted to keep the status quo. They, they were frightened of what might happen if the, the Roman beast was prodded too much. Now, John the Baptist, he's got all the appearances of an upstart. He's, he's a rebel. He looks like a rebel anyway. He looks like he's operating outside of convention, he's, and he's massively popular. Like people are flooding towards him. Um, and so, well, the leaders want to know what he's up to. What's his game? What's, what's his angle in this? So you see in our passage in verse 19, the leaders in Jerusalem send a delegation. They want to know who he is. And we don't know if they come in hope or in fear, but they do want to know what does he think about himself? How does he position himself in all of this? Does he think that he is one of these Messiah figures? You see, there was an eagerness for a Messiah to come. The Old Testament had promised that at one time an anointed ruler would come. And that's what Messiah means, to be anointed. Uh, this anointed ruler would come and the expectation was building that, that when he came he would be a military person. And he would lead the people in that revolt and push the Romans away. Is that you, John? Is that what you're about? Verse 20, he falls over backwards, emphatically denying he is not the Messiah. He's definitely not the Messiah. In fact, his, his reply has a sense of me. If you want to find the Messiah, don't look at me. I am not the Messiah. Well, then what? They follow up with other options. What about Elijah? Uh, the Old Testament prophet Malachi had spoken about the return of the prophet Elijah before the great day of the Lord. Is that you, John? Are you that? Not him, he says. That's not the way he sees it. Well, what then, John? Who are you? Are you the prophet? This is going way, way back, back towards the beginning of the Bible in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, an expectation that a prophet like Moses would come. And again, that, that expectation kind of built up and up and up. There's lots of speculation. Is that it, John? Are you, are you that prophet? Nope. He doesn't really give them much to go on, does he? In a sense, maybe their frustration. They've got to take something back. So they say, what do you say about yourself? Verse 23, this is what John says. 
I'm a voice. I'm a voice. It's a bit like, you know, when you're at home and you hear a kind of thud at the front door and you go in, there's a, a load of post that's been delivered. So you go through the post and you, you look at the letters and then in, in, in the midst of it, there is a kind of flyer. It's what we call junk mail, isn't it? Uh, we don't ask for it, um, but we, we look at it, we see what it's about, and then if we're responsible, we put it in the recycling bin. Uh, that flyer is a scrap of paper. It hasn't got any worth in itself. Its only purpose is to convey a message. John says, that's me, I'm junk mail. I'm a flyer. There's no significance about me. Don't look at me. I am just a voice. Don't try and put me into your schemes. Don't place me. But listen. Listen to what I'm saying. Or what is his voice? He says he's the voice of Isaiah 40. And when that prophet told, a voice would cry in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Simple message, really. The the message is, God is coming and get ready. Make straight the way for the Lord. John says, that's it. That's my message. Don't get stuck on trying to figure me out. God is coming. Get ready. Then the Pharisees come in. They're they're another one of the influential religious groups. They're not content with what John has said. In fact, that they kind of pretty much ignore what he said. They bypass his own answer to the question. And, and they say in verse 25, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, now John the baptizer, he is doing something new. And so they say, well, if you're not one of these authority figures, one of these figures who we think will come and they will bring great change, if you're not one of them, what right do you have to be changing things? John keeps on track, doesn't he? See verse 26? He says, I I baptize with water. And that's what they're asking about. Why are you doing it? Give us an explanation. But but John said, I don't want to talk about that thing. I want to say, among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. John's saying, "I'm, I'm baptizing to get you ready for him, the coming one. Now that's, that's what John understands about himself. He's a voice crying out, God is coming and get ready. And then he says, the coming one has come. He, he's among you. He's not yet recognized, but he's right here. What does John think about him? You see what he says next? He says next, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In those days, a a student would be expected to do for their teacher everything a servant does. Times have changed a bit, haven't they? Um, A student would be expected to do for their teacher everything a servant does. With one exception, the student would not touch the master's feet. Because it was such a mucky job to touch the feet. That was left to the lowest slave in the household. John's saying, this coming one who is here... the way I am in, in, in comparison to him. I, I'm not worthy to do even the most menial of tasks for him. This one, he is so much more than I am. In, in comparison, I'm, I, I'm, I'm nothing. I can't, I can't really find a way to compare other than saying I'm, I, I'm, I'm less than, than the least in comparison to him. You see, what John wants to do is to point towards him. He has such worth. Such worth for John. And so... So we can ask ourselves, 
as I said at the beginning from David Wallace, everybody worships. The, the only choice we get is what to worship. And the Baptist here makes his choice very plain. This coming one, he says, this coming one has such immense worth. My choice, says John, is to ascribe worth to him. Worship. Is he right? I want to ask that, don't we? What is the worth of this coming one? And if we can answer that, whether John is right, we also want to know how. How do we do that? How do we give worth to him? How do we worship this one? Well, let's see. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. He is the coming one. His name is Jesus. Here he is. Why is he of such worth? Well, John's testimony in these verses, I think, tells us three things about the worth of Jesus. And we'll look at them. First one, the worth of Jesus, the surpassing worth of Jesus because of what he does. The worth of Jesus because of what he does. When you boil an egg, it's fascinating boiling eggs. I find it really fascinating. When, when you boil an egg, the, 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 kind of, um, the heat uh, begins to break down the proteins and then begins to allow new bonds to form between the proteins in order that the structure of the egg is changed forever. Yeah, It goes from a kind of gloopy, see-through liquid into that hard white stuff. It's good, isn't it? I find that exciting. The structure is changed. What, what does Jesus do when he comes? John, John is, is telling us, he's going to tell us here that Jesus has a mission, a, a, a mission that is so, so huge that it kind of restructures reality, reconfigures how everything works. It, it's an immense thing. In, in, in a small way, it's pictured in, um, in, in the, the book Lay Miserables. Um, which is, who's that by? Victor Hugo, is it? Yeah, I'm getting a nod from a history man, so it must be. Um, uh, so so in, in this, you've got the protagonist, Jean Valjean, um, and, and he's, the, the, the world has been cruel to him, so he is cruel to the world. That's how he works. That's his, his, his operating reality is, everyone is cruel to me, so I must be cruel to everybody else. And then he meets Grace. He, um, he, he is, is treated with kindness by somebody, but he steals from that person. Um, and he runs away, but he gets caught. He gets brought back to the victim of the crime, and when he comes back to the victim of the crime, the victim pours more kindness upon him. He says, no, those things aren't stolen. They're, they're given. They're a gift. And, and in fact, you haven't got it all. There's more for you to have. I will give you more. And a moment of grace shattered Jean Valjean's whole view of the world. He thought the world was only cruel, so he must only be cruel in it. But at that moment, the whole pattern of his life changed. It was an event that restructured his reality. In a tiny way, it points to what happens here as, as Jesus approaches and John says, look. He says, feast your gaze on this one. Look. Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's huge. That is so big. Saying that Jesus' mission is, well, it's directly concerned with sin, first of all. That's what it's, we see, don't we? Sin, the, the failure of people to love God and love others. But, but notice here it says, 
It is the sin of the world, not the sins of the world, but the sin of the world. It's a a catch-all term to contain everything, the entire mass of human wickedness from beginning to end, all of it. Now, Now, God's justice has always demanded that sin is punished. But here, God's mission in Jesus, Jesus' mission is to be the lamb who takes the sin away. Now, right from the beginning, God had had taught a a kind of principle of transfer, a transfer of guilt uh, onto an animal who would pay the price deserved by the offender. There was this repeated pattern, generation after generation, year after year, this this repeated practice that, that would show that when sin was confessed over the animal, a sin that deserved death, then the animal would die in the place of the sinner. And by that means, the sin would be removed and forgiveness would be possible. But all of those ancient sacrifices were kind of embedding a principle and pointing forward to the one who has now come, to this Jesus who is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. This Jesus, he has come to be sacrificed. He's come so that he might take hold of the sin of the world And he might put it onto himself and then he might offer himself to the justice of God dressed like that. That's what we're to understand, that Jesus is to kind of put on this clothing of human sin. He's to wear this sin, he's to be dressed in the whole package of human wickedness, the, the, the sin that God hates. And then dressed like that, he is to go to God and say, Deal with me as this sin deserves. Now all of the divine anger, just and holy that it is, warranted by this sin, he says, I choose that it falls on me. And the result is the sin is taken away. That's Jesus' mission. His mission is to be God's provision. You see, he's not just a lamb. He's the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, the Lamb that God provides for this very purpose. He, right from the beginning, right from the moment that sin entered the world, God has been seeking the lost. Now, ever since our, our first parents ran away from Him, God has been working to bring them back, to bring fellowship with Him. And now His love stretches down as He provides the way for people to come into His love. And the way God's going to do it, he doesn't intend to tolerate sin. He's not going to say, oh, it doesn't matter. I will let it go. No, his plan is to take it away by providing a lamb. One to take the sin of the world. One to carry that sin in his own body right to the cross of Calvary. And for every last drop of justice to be answered. To ensure that that sin is utterly wiped away. The Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is his worth, his surpassing worth. A world that is shaped and structured by sin will be remolded and reshaped so that sin will not be inevitable. Sin will not be the end of all things. And and the greatness of this sacrifice is that it is big enough to do that. It has a sufficiency to answer for the sin of the world. It's not like a Tesco fuel pump 
you can get fuel from other suppliers. But when I went to Tesco recently, because of the rising fuel prices, I wanted to pay at the pump, but I reached the limit. I couldn't fill up. It was stopped. It only went so far. That's not like Jesus' sacrifice. That there is such value in Jesus' sacrifice, we will never hit the limit of what he covers. The surpassing worth of Jesus is what he does as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the first thing. His worth because of what he does. The second thing. The worth of Jesus, the surpassing worth of Jesus because of how he can do what he does. Because of how he can do what he does. Now what is it about Jesus that means he is up to that? Uh, If you were about to have heart surgery, that would be a pretty worrying, anxious time. And you go to the hospital to meet the surgeon and you turn up and uh, they say, oh no, the surgeon's off today, is, is not around, but don't worry, we'll, we'll sort it out. Just, just take a seat and, and wait. And so you take a seat and you're sitting there and you hear an announcement over the tannoy system saying, um, uh, has anybody got a few minutes? Um, we, we, we need someone to perform surgery. Doesn't matter who you are, just, just as long as you've got a little bit of time, won't take long, uh, come, come to reception and we'll, we'll crack on. You don't want that to happen, do you? You get very nervous. It's not okay to operate without qualifications. You've got to be up to the job. How can, the, the, how can Jesus be up to this job? How can he be the Lamb of God who takes away sin? Now, all those sacrificial lambs of old could not do it. The Bible is very clear that the blood of animals cannot take away sin. It never could. It was only a picture. So what is it about Jesus that means he can do it? Well, the Baptist testimony kind of um, recalls what we saw in the opening statement, especially in verse 14. Verse 14 tells us the word became flesh. God became man. And John the Baptist says that he is the voice of Isaiah 40. Make straight the way for the Lord that God is coming. Isaiah 40 says that the voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord, that then the next bit in Isaiah 40 says, see, look, it says, behold, the sovereign Lord comes. And it says he comes with power. And it says he comes like a shepherd. He comes like a shepherd to hold his little ones right to his heart. Well, John the Baptist follows that, that pattern. First, he says, I am the voice. God is coming. I'm coming to say, get ready for God to come. And then he says, look, here he is. The Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God. That's how God comes. This is how the shepherd reaches to gather his little ones. He comes as the Lamb to be the sin-removing sacrifice. And and, and John explains it in verse 30. You see in verse 30? This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me. This Jesus, he is a man. He is flesh like I am and like you are. He is fully human, but he surpasses the Baptist. Why does he surpass him? What does he say? Because he was for me. The eternal God became flesh. The infinite became infant and lived among us. Jesus is 
all God and all man. The lamb that is provided by God is the lamb who is God. God himself is sent to be what the world most needs. That's the surpassing worth of Jesus. A Jesus can be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world only because he and he alone is fully man and fully God. See, the one who takes away sin, he has to be a a human like we are. He has to be. Because the problem of sin is a human problem. If my car engine is broken, I don't help it by fixing my vacuum cleaner. The problem's in the car. That's where the problem has to be fixed. The problem of sin is in here. It's in the human heart. That's where the problem has to be fixed. Jesus had to become a, a human to answer for a human problem. But the human problem was so great. The, the sin of the world is against God. That's the human problem. That we're made for God, but we ran from him. We sinned against him. We sin against him. You know, if, if I were to go from here this morning and on my way home, I were to you know, attack a fence, jump on the fence, assault it. That'd be a crime, wouldn't it? And I'd have to make amends according to the value of the fence. If, if on my way home, instead of attacking a fence, I attacked a person. If I did the same thing, it'd be a much greater crime because of the value of the person. Now, our guilt is measured by the value of what we sin against. But our sins against God. How do we measure God? Now, any crime against God must be beyond measure, infinite. So, if the sin of the world will be truly removed, it must find an infinite price to pay. You see that a human sacrifice would never be enough to pay for it all. It must be a human sacrifice, but it must also be an infinite sacrifice. And there we find the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. That he is uniquely suited. The only one able to do this job. The only one qualified to carry away our sins. Because he is the only one who combines in his one person full humanity and full divinity. So you see what God does for us. In the Lord Jesus. In his gift of the Lord Jesus. You see what he does to to paraphrase a geezer called Beza from the 16th century. He said it like this. He said... He descended to earth to draw us to heaven. He he burdened himself with our sins so that we might be unburdened. He was captured to release us, condemned so that we might be acquitted. He was nailed to the cross for our sins so that our sins might be nailed to that cross. Died so that we might live. And yet being fully God, he rose to life to show that our sin is left in the grave. And that means that our sin, and that that means that our own death, Our own death will no longer be a punishment for sin and entrance to more death. But because of what he has done, it means that our own death will be the end of our corruption and our entrance into life. And it's only possible because the Lamb of God is Jesus Christ. He is the Word become flesh, fully God, fully man. That's the only way he can take away the sin of the world. That's why he has such surpassing worth. Because of how he can do what he does. But the third thing. The third thing in John's testimony. About the worth of Jesus. Is the worth of Jesus. Because of how much he does it. 
The worth of Jesus because of how much he does it. Have you seen the film 13 Lives? came out this summer, I think, um, based on the, the rescue of the, the Thai football team, the Thai balls football, boys football team who got caught in the caves underground. It's, it's a film that tells that story. And, and you see in the film these rescue divers going through these underground caves trying to find the boys. But their oxygen supply is limited, limited to what they have in their tanks. And so always they are worried about running out of air that they must always worry about, about not going too far. They've got to have enough to get back. Always they are asking, have I got enough? We sometimes ask the same about the Lord Jesus. See, what he does is immense. It is, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But, but have we got enough of that for ourselves? How much do we get of it? How much access do we have to what he has done? How how much do we benefit from him? How how do we even benefit from it? No, he's he's done this wonderful thing. But but how is it not just a wonderful thing beyond our reach? Well, the Baptist was asked why he is baptizing. He begins to answer in verse 26. I baptize with water. But, but I think he only really gets to answer the question on the following day. We don't know if those who asked the question are still there. But he says in verse 31, he explains it, doesn't he? He says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water, this is why he's baptizing with water, was that he might be revealed to Israel. That water baptism that John the Baptist did was a picture of sin washed away wasn't the removal of sin it was a a picture a preparation and John says I was doing it so that Jesus would be revealed as the Lamb of God he explains in verse 32 look at verse 32 then John gave this testimony I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him and I myself did not know him but the one who sent me to baptize water told me The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John the Baptist saw this visible sign. The Spirit as a dove, like a dove. We're not quite sure what he saw. We we just know that he saw. He saw this sign. And he understood that it was the Spirit coming onto Jesus. And staying there, not leaving, remaining on him. It's a way that Jesus is marked out as the Messiah. Anointed by the Spirit. Fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, God says through the prophet, This is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Literally, he says, this is the delight of my soul. This This is the one who is the full object of divine happiness. I will put my spirit on him. How will you know him? I will put my spirit on him. This is Jesus, God in flesh. He is the the delight of the Father upon whom the spirit rests. What does he do? The one on whom the spirit stays, he's the one who will baptize with the spirit, will submerge people into the spirit. just, Just think it through. Think through what we're being told here. We're being told... 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the same Jesus who does that, he is the one who is permanently kind of full of the Spirit. The Spirit remains on him all the time. And this Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away sin, who is permanently indwelt by the Spirit, this Jesus is this Jesus who baptizes people with the Spirit. Not by taking the Spirit off himself and giving it to others, because the Spirit is always on him. So when he baptizes with the Spirit, he's not, he's not separating himself, he's joining himself, making a spiritual connection. But these are baptized in the same Spirit that stays on him. Which means that those who he baptizes with the Spirit are included in everything that he is and everything that he has done. I think it's a further explanation of what we saw back in verse 12. Back in verse 12, we saw that to all who receive him, those who believe in his name, to believe on Jesus is to receive Jesus. And we see now how it happens. What's the mechanism of it? That those who believe Jesus are able to receive him because he baptizes them with the Holy Spirit. He forms a real spiritual connection between them and him. And it means that the saving work of Christ is not out of reach. It means we never need to worry that it might run out. We, we never need to worry that it might not be enough for us. Because there is total access open by the Spirit of God who lives in him and lives in us. Binding us together forever and ever and ever. That's the testimony of the Baptist. Look at this Jesus. He has such worth. Unsurpassed worth. Look at him. And everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the Baptist makes his choice. He will worship this Jesus with such immense worth. And we've asked, is he right to do so? Now what is the worth of this Jesus? Well, the Baptist shows that his worth is as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His worth is as the God-man, uniquely able and sufficient to do it. And his worth is as the one who baptizes with the Spirit. His worth is the one who does it all the way. He saves to the utmost all who will come to him. But we want to ask how. Now, if he has that worth, how do we ascribe it to him? How do we worship him? Well, this passage helps us. And, and in some ways, it's very simple. How do we worship this Jesus? We, we treat him as he is. We, we, we give to him in our actions and our, our lives what he is. Four things. First one. We give him the right to be saviour. Jesus is revealed as the Lamb of God who takes away sin. He is the saving sacrifice. That is how we should know him. If people say he's just a good example. Or that his, 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 his death was just a tragedy. They're not giving him his true worth. We worship Jesus when we know him as saviour. Secondly. We admit that we need to be saved. See, Jesus will not be worshipped if we make out that our sin is not a problem. Now, the scripture gives this definition. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. But we raid his value if we think that our sin didn't need that. Imagine, um, imagine a father and a son walking up in the hills, in the mountains. And, and, and as they walk, it gets a bit dangerous and the father falls and he's trapped in the rocks. And it's a treacherous situation. He's badly injured. The, the, the night is beginning to come. So, so the, son says, the son says, Dad, I, I love you. And I, I'm going to go and get help. And the, the son rushes away fast as he can. It's a long way. It's a hard way. But he doesn't stop. He goes all the way till he can raise an alarm. As he raises the alarm, he's dead on his feet. He's practically fainting. But, but, but he presses on and he guides this rescue team back to where his dad is. And then when they get there, the dad says... I'm fine. Stop all this fuss. That's a waste of time. You shouldn't have bothered. Not only that is that man an idiot because he did need rescuing, but what an insult to the son. The son has given so much to bring the rescue. Now our sin, the sin that sits in every heart, puts us in the most treacherous condition because our sin is against the eternal majesty of the living God and it must be punished. And God came, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to suffer in our price, to put in our place, to put down his, his life, to pay the price for our sin. So how, how offensive it is to him when we say, yeah, but we don't need to be saved. If we, if we say that our sin is, is small, and we do that so easily, don't we? We we make excuses. We repackage it in different ways. When we do that, we are taking away what the Bible says about Jesus. We're not giving him his worth. He is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Let's not degrade his honor by taking that work from him, saying it's not needed. Or even saying, thanks very much, but we can do it ourselves. What an offense to him. It's like if somebody lovingly prepares a great meal for you and, and you're absolutely starving, but you refuse to eat because you say, I can find some crumbs in my pocket to feed on. And let's give him the honor of doing what he does. Let's not want to take it from him. Now we worship Jesus when we admit that we need our sin to be taken away. Thirdly, we worship Jesus when we accept that we can be saved. We worship Jesus when we accept that we can be saved. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's not degrade his honor by taking that work from him. And another way we take that work from him is we say, I'm stuck with my sin. What a degrading of the worth of Jesus when we wallow in our guilt, when we despair in hopeless ruin. And yet all the while, the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. Why do we keep it? Do we think it's too much for him to handle? If all the sin of all the world were on your back. No, if your sin was so great that all the sin of all the others was just dust on the scales in comparison. And you had a crushing mountain of transgression. Your own transgression heaped upon you. Even if that were the case. Let's not degrade Jesus. His work is sufficient for the sin of the whole world. There is no sin heap that is too big for him. Now, we worship Jesus when we accept we can be saved. 
when we've realized that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And so fourthly, we worship Jesus when we trust him to save us. We trust him to save us. The eternal son of God, the chosen one, the complete delight of the father laid across the father's heart. This one set aside his glory, condescended to come into the mess of our humanity, humbled himself all the way down, willing, willing to be himself the lamb provided by God, willing himself to carry all of our sin. Shouldn't that willingness The willingness to be the Lamb of God. Shouldn't his willingness be enough to secure our willingness to trust him? We can trust him to save us all the way. All who believe receive him. That is, he baptizes us in the spirit so we have this unhindered and complete access to everything he has done. And what has he done? He is the Lamb of God who died to take away your sin. Everybody worships. And we're worshipping now. As we go from this place, we'll be worshipping. In this week ahead, we will worship. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the Baptist choice was to worship Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has such immense worth. Would you join him? Would you join him as we give him, the Lord Jesus, the right to be saviour? Admit that we need to be saved. Accept that we can be saved and trust him to save us and to save us all the way. Let me just take a moment of quiet and reflect on that. Everybody worships. Who will you worship?